Well, good morning, church. My name is Ike Nicholson. I'm the senior pastor. Bells, thank you so much. That was amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Let's give them one more round of applause. It was also good to see Cheryl Sartain back in the bell choir. She was in Lebanon, and uh, she finally got out of country, so we're grateful that she's back here in the States, and uh, God's blessing to you. Thank you. Um, So uh, I'm impressed to see so many people here. Back on the East Coast, this would shut down everything. And uh, so I called Joe. I said, what do we do when we have lots of snow? And Joe, Pastor Joe said, we go to church. So I was like, that's where we are. And uh, so uh, I have uh, uh, a message today that is a little bit longer uh, than normal. You're not applauding for that one. So um, I'm going to try to get through it quicker. Uh, but you are the, because you're here today, I know that you are the faithful, God's beloved, and uh, you're good with that. Um, But remember when I first came here, if we go a little too long, all you got to do is yell out, bring it on home, preacher. And uh, so, but my hearing's been kind of messed up lately. I want to uh, uh, share with you from Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning at verse 4. So if you have your Bible or your smartphone or your Bible app, if you would turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. I'm going to begin reading in verse 4. You've probably heard uh, uh, portions of this passage before. Uh, I'm going to read through verse 25, but we're going to be focusing on the first few verses uh, of the reading today, but it's important to kind of get the whole context. So Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates." And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you, for the Lord your God is in your midst as a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised. And when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son and to your daughters, We who were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, 
And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there, that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God, for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all his commandments before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. May God add his blessing and understanding to the reading of this, his holy and perfect word. Amen. So Pastor Drew shared with us some Latin. So we've had English and we've had Latin. So let's do a little bit of Hebrew. Will that work? Shema Yisrael. Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. That is the first phrase of a prayer from Deuteronomy chapter 6 called the Shema. The Shema. We get the name Shema from the first word. Shema, Yisrael. It means hear, O Israel. It is one of the most famous and important prayers in the Bible. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Shema is the most important prayer in Judaism. It is said at least twice a day in the morning and in the evening. And since the church of Jesus Christ was a part of Judaism, along with the temple, which wasn't destroyed until 70 AD by the Romans, and the synagogue for over 150 years, some scholars say that the church and the synagogue were together for 200 years, something we oftentimes forget, the Shema also was an important prayer to Christians. And alongside eight other prayers in your Old Testament, we might need to do a series on those eight prayers someday, along with the famous prayers of the New Testament, we've said one of them already this morning, the Lord's Prayer. There are a few others. Mary's Prayer, you might know it as the Magnificat, Simeon's Prayer, or the Nunc Dimittis, oftentimes offered and read at funerals. The Shema is one that you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, might do well to memorize, especially with the admonitions that we are to bind them to our hands and we are to place them on our foreheads and we are to write them on our doorposts. As a matter of fact, you probably have seen an image like this before, where it is the custom for the Jews of wearing a small box or a phylactery on their foreheads and tied around their arms and onto their hands. And within that small box is the Shema along with some of the prayers and commandments of the Hebrew Scriptures. Before we get into this, as we conclude our series on stewardship this Sunday, I want to look at some of the words that your text, our text today, gives to us. And the first word is the word love. In Hebrew, the word for love is ahava, ahava. Now, unlike Greek, that has several words for the word love, in Hebrew, there is essentially only one word, ahava. Ahava can be used to describe the love that a parent has for a child, 
like Abraham's love for his son Isaac. It can be used to describe the love between friends, as the Bible talks about Jonathan loved King David. It can be used to describe the loyalty between political parties. That's something we don't know much about these days. But a love that King Hiram had for King David and his willingness because of that love to assist Solomon in building the temple. When Moses was teaching the Israelites about God's love for his people, the word ahava is used because it is an extension of God's character. When Jeremiah, that's Jeremiah, if you're taking notes, chapter 31, verse 3, Jeremiah tells the people that, uh, of Jerusalem specifically that God's love had no end, which is a way of saying in the Hebrew that something that doesn't have an end also doesn't have a beginning. It isn't a love that people earned. And if you read Jeremiah, you'll see that the people of Jerusalem certainly didn't do anything to earn God's love. But as Jeremiah seeks to explain to the people, the love that God has for us is an extension of God's character. God loved because God is love. Does that sound familiar? We hear that a lot in the New Testament, particularly in the Gospel of John and in the epistles of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. That's why the Bible compares God's love with the love of a parent. That's why the Bible talks about the love that a spouse should have for their husband or wife. It is the strongest kind of love that there is. And since God's love is a part of his being, it is one of the significant foundational points of what it means to begin to understand our relationship with God. That is, is that God's ahava, God's love, is not just a feeling, but it's also an action. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 37, Moses tells the people that it was God's ahava, God's love, that brought the Hebrews out of slavery in Egypt. So when the Shema this prayer, calls on us to love God, what the prayer is saying to us is that we are to love God as God has loved us. That's a tall order. And so, if we say we love God but do not show love, then that is in actuality an indictment that we don't know God. The Bible says that we are to love God, and the Bible teaches us how to love God. And the Bible says to us, doesn't suggest to us, I may slip and use that word throughout this message just because of our 21st century sensibilities, but the Bible doesn't really have those kinds of sensibilities because the Bible says if you love God, then you will obey God. And when you seek to obey God, that is best expressed in how we love one another. How we love the poor. How we love the widow. How we love the stranger. How we love the homeless. And I'm not making all of this up. This is all listed right there in Deuteronomy. 
The Shema is our declaration when we pray that prayer that we love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our might. Your translation may say strength. We'll get to that in just a few minutes. All three of these words are really difficult words to translate, especially into English. There just isn't the same kind of word in English to describe those three words we translate from the Hebrew of heart, soul, and might. So let's try to look at these each for just a few moments. When we think of heart, we think of that biological organ in our chest that is required for life. And yet, even in our language, when we think of heart, we think purely of emotions. We talk about loving others with all of our heart. You probably have experienced a time in your life when a, 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 a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a husband or a wife or a child or a friend said, you know, I don't want to be with you anymore. I don't like you anymore. You felt the pain right here. And although the Hebrew people understood the biological nature of heart, for them, heart wasn't just something that was biological, nor was it something that was just emotional. The ancient Hebrews, ironically, did not really understand the concept of a brain, like you and I think of it. We think of intellect and emotions. The Hebrews didn't have that kind of separation. For the Hebrews, the heart was also the primary place that all intellectual activity took place. Your heart is where you understand. In Proverbs, we read that the heart is where our wisdom is. You, you see, the heart isn't just some physical thing, but it's where we think, it's where we have emotions, it's where we make decisions. You probably have heard the phrase, a broken heart. I always, I'm always intrigued when people say, I don't like Christianity, I don't like Judaism, I don't like the Bible, and I reject everything about the Bible. But you'll hear them use Bible terms and Bible allusions all the time because the phrase, I have a broken heart, was originally from the Bible. It originates in the Bible because the heart is the place where we feel joy. It's the place where we make decisions, like when David desired to build the temple. The heart is where we make our choices. In Proverbs 4, verse 23, we read, guard your heart because it flows your whole life. The prophet Jeremiah believed that the heart is also fundamentally sick. In Jeremiah 17, 9, he writes, the heart of the human is deceitful above all irreversibly sick who can even understand it and we thought the Calvinists invented total depravity <laughs> Jeremiah had watched the whole generation turn away from God Jeremiah had watched his beloved Jewish people sacrifice their children to pagan gods 
So the only way to love God is a total renewal of the heart. That's why in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, Moses said that the only way we are ever going to love God is for our hearts to be circumcised. That is to remove the evil that's in our heart, the stubbornness that's in our heart. King David, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, all the writers of these great books in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, all of them ask God, O Lord, renew our hearts. And what that means is, is that we're asking God to renew our thoughts, our emotions, our choices. All of those things need to be redeemed. They all need to be made new by God. We can't fix our hearts. Only God can fix our hearts. And maybe that's why your grandparents said to you when you were but a child, when she grabbed you or, and hauled you off to church, that she might have said, I'm hoping that today you'll accept Jesus, where? Into your heart. It makes sense now, doesn't it? To love God with our heart, we need to let God into our hearts. And not just for a remodel, but to rebuild the whole thing altogether. When we're called to love God with all of our soul, the Hebrew word for soul is nefeshay, or is commonly referred to as nefesh. This word nefesh in the Hebrew is used over 700 times in the Old Testament. Now, the English word soul is really a terrible translation, mainly because of how you and I understand our souls. And the understanding that you and I have about our soul has really been influenced more by Greek philosophers than it has been by the Bible. We think of a soul as sort of a non-physical part of our being that is trapped somehow in our body, and that when we die, that, that non-physical soul is released. It's one of the reasons, I think, that our understanding of the resurrection is so messed up in the church today. Significant Christians, numbers of Christians, believe that Jesus' resurrection isn't a physical resurrection, but a spiritual or a soul resurrection. That is not biblical. It is nowhere near how the Hebrews would have understood the word nephesh or soul. Now here's, what, here's where it gets a little bit humorous. And so don't be afraid to laugh in church. Don't be afraid to laugh with the Bible. I think these are good things. The word nephesh literally translated means throat. Our nephesh, our throat. Now, now just go with me a little bit here. The Bible says that when the Hebrews were wandering in the desert, they cried to the Lord that their nephesh was dry, that their throats were dry. When Joseph was sold into slavery, the Bible says that uh, uh, they took his nephesh and put it in irons. That is, as they put him in shackles around his throat. It, it, it doesn't just mean throat, though. The, the, the throat, as they understood it, was that through which air goes in, food goes in, water or wine goes in. Everything that you and I need to live goes through the nefesh, through the throat. And so because of that, according to the ancient Hebrews, the nefesh 
becomes the center of seeking to understand all that we need to live. Our entire being. Your soul, therefore, is your entire living being and body. In many parts of the Bible, the nephesh becomes to mean the whole physical living, breathing being. Now, now this doesn't mean that the Hebrews didn't understand uh, that there is a life apart from the physical body. There are some examples in the Hebrew scriptures about this, but they don't use the word nephesh for that. Nephesh is best interpreted as, are you ready? You. The whole you. Whatever that is, you are your nephesh. A good example is found in Psalms 119, verse 175. It's translated, let me live that I may praise you. But when the poet wrote that poem down, in its original language, he would have said, let my nephesh live that it may praise you. That is, is that you and I are called to offer our entire being to love God because we know that we are utterly dependent entirely on God. Now, the final word in, in this first part of the Shema is the word strength or might. We love God with all of our strength, our might. The Hebrew word here is uh, is meod, M-E-O-D, meod. Now, now this one gets a little dicey. Now, just hang on, buckle up. The Hebrew word does have a word for strength or might, but it is not the word meod. The best translation for the word meod is the word very. It's actually what, you English teachers? An adverb. To love God with all of our very. <laughs> that wouldn't make for a very good English translation, would it? Well, let, let me give you some, some hints as to how we might want to understand that word. In the first chapter of Genesis, when God creates after each day, God says he looked at it and he said it was good. Until the very end, when he's finished creating everything, the Bible translated, translates it, is he looked at all that he created and he said it was very good. That is, it is meod, good. Well, let me give you another example. Uh, when the flood was occurring and Noah and his family were on the ark, uh, the writer says that the waters were meod, angry. That is, is that they were very angry. When Saul, and it's not just negative words, because when Saul becomes king, uh, the text says that Saul was meod happy. He was very happy. And sometimes in the original Hebrew language, we can see the word meod meod, which means, I bet you can figure this out, very, very. It, it, it is this, this kind of expression of, this is really, really good. For example, when the spies came out of the promised land, reporting back to Moses about uh, the land flowing with milk and honey, with grapes that needed to be carried on, on large sticks, they said that the promised land was mayod, mayod good. It was very, very good. 
So let's get back to the Shema real quick. When you and I are called to love God with all of our heart, our thoughts, our emotions, our choices, when you and I are called to love God with all of our soul, that is, is our entire being, our body, and now we're being called to love God with all of our maod, with all of our very, with all of our muchness. And though that sounds kind of funny, I bet you guys get that. You understand that. This final thing means that we are to devote every possible thing that we have that is us to the worship and to the love of God. So your might, your, your, your strength is everything about you. Your mind, your time, your talent, your treasure. Your treasure? Well, this is stewardship, right? When the ancient Jews translated the Hebrew Scriptures into Greek, the Bible that Jesus used, they actually used a couple of different words to translate this phrase. They used the word power. They used the word strength. They used the word might. And, and, and though that makes sense in, in our English, when those uh, same scholars translated the Hebrew Scriptures into Aramaic, another language that was common in the time of Jesus, a weird language, a mixture of, of Hebrew and Greek was Aramaic, they translated this word maod as wealth. That is, is all of our value, all that we value. Now, now, money is a good thing to talk about. It's not a popular thing to talk about, but it's a good thing to talk about. Whatever gets you on edge and makes you uncomfortable when we talk about our commitment to God are good things for us to focus on in our prayer life. Good things to focus on in our spiritual life. And it may not be treasure. It may not be money. But whatever it is, when you and I are confronted with it with regard to our relationship with God and that that makes us uncomfortable, that is a sign that that, whatever makes us uncomfortable, is getting in the way of our relationship with God. In Mark chapter 12, verses 29 to 30, Jesus, asked, Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? You probably can figure out where I'm going here. Because Jesus gives as an answer the Shema. Except he adds a word, which isn't unusual. He's quoting the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, which I already told you about just a minute ago. We are to love God with all of our hearts, all of our soul, and all of our mind and strength. Now, you might be asking, all right, Ike, what do you think is the best way to translate that? Well, first of all, I'm not going to argue with Jesus. Now, if you came for that, you came for the wrong reason. <laughs> Sometimes Shauna says, what are you going to preach on today? I said, Jesus. She said, what are you going to say about him? I'm foring. <laughs> she said, what else are you going to preach on? I said, sin. She said, what are you going to say about that? I'm against it. 
If we're asking the question, what is the best way to translate the Shema so that it feels good to me? We're asking the wrong question. The Shema means to love God with everything in our life. All of who we are, all of what we have, all of our time. It's where we get the phrase when we, when we talk about serving and worshiping God with all of our time, talent, and treasure. Now, some folks, when they hear that phrase, they say, oh, good, what's the percentage of each? Is it 33, 33, 33? Well, how about 60, and then the other two are just 20? Can I do 50, 50 with one and leave out the other one? Generally, the treasure. But here's the truth. It's not something that we break down. It is something that we ask of all three. 100% of all three. 100% of your heart. 100% of your soul. And 100% of your might, your mind. All of your time. All of your talent. And all of your treasure. Now that's uncomfortable, isn't it? And if it's uncomfortable then we're getting close to how God wants to speak to us about these things. So you might be asking, okay, okay, Ike, but how? How do we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and might? Well, Deuteronomy has an answer for that. First, are you ready? It may not be what you think. We are to love God by teaching our children. It's right there in Deuteronomy. I read it to you. I didn't make it up. It's not some backwards agenda that we have for the vision and mission and ministry of our congregation. It's the Bible. We probably didn't see that answer coming. That one of the primary ways that we love God is to teach our children. Now, I have to admit, there's a part of me that wanted to skip everything that I've already talked about today and only talk about this, about what it means to teach our children. We could do a whole series just on that. And, and, and I'm going to make some of you angry at this point. And, and please, I don't mean to. And, and you judge whether what I'm saying is accurate. Go home and think about it for a couple of days. Don't throw anything. I'm glad we don't have hymnals in the chairs because you can't throw them at me. But we have this really weird understanding in our culture today about how we teach our children. Now, I'm not trying to be critical, but we often relegate that task to other people. We expect our school teachers to teach our children to read, write, do math, computer coding, science, and all that stuff. I get that. I understand it. I'm not really good at computer co- I'm not good at working a computer let alone telling how a computer should work. We expect our coaches and our school counselors to teach our children character and integrity. We expect our children's ministry staff here at the church to teach our children the faith, if that were even possible. Now, let me explain this to you. You hand us your children for two to four hours a month assuming that you come to church two Sundays a month or four Sundays a month. We get two to four hours a month to teach your children the faith, and parents wonder why their children leave the faith. We can't do that. It's not, we've got a great staff, 
We can't make your children little Jesuses in two to four hours a month. We give our kids to professional educators every day for a large number of their waking hours. And even those kids who are with these professional educators for significantly longer times than we have kids, they still struggle with diagram sentences, remembering U.S. history or solving algebraic equations. And the culture expects us as the church to teach the entirety of the faith to children between school events that are scheduled on Sunday mornings like there is today, family outings that take precedence. I probably should stop, shouldn't I? Well, I do have some good news for you. We have a way to fix that. We really do. It's a biblical way of fixing it. Are you ready? You teach your children the faith. The Bible reminds us that it is mom and dad's job to teach the faith. Every day, every morning, every evening, all the time. And I know it's hard. Shauna and I believe it is our job to teach our children the Bible. I'm a professional at this, for crying out loud. And still, we struggle to find the time to answer questions, to adequately explain that which we struggle with ourselves. But I have some more good news for you. Much of what we teach isn't by, is not by how well we answer the questions. It's not about how we plan Bible or devotional times with our family. Because we know we teach more by what we do than by what we say. That's why Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children. It's always annoyed me that Paul just, just goes after dads. But that's who he goes after. And the implied statement is this. Dads, you and I have a significant responsibility in teaching our children. Do not provoke your children, Paul says. That is, parent justly and fairly. I struggle with that. Ask, ask my son. He will tell you that I favor my daughters over him. I'm significantly harder on him than I am on the girls. Now, I really don't want you to ask my son, please. <laughs> but I do pray every day. A prayer that was once taught to me by a godly elder of a church I once served. And he said this. He said, Ike, this is the prayer that I offer multiple times a day to God. Quote, Lord, whatever I do that pleases you, help my children remember. And whatever I do that displeases you or is not in accordance with your will, please make them forget it. I love those kinds of visceral, honest prayers. We love God through our obedience. Multiple times the writer of Deuteronomy reminds us, obey God. Now I know there are lots of things to do. Lots of things that we're not supposed to do that are in the Bible. And so I've got some more help for you because the prophet Micah gives us some great perspective on this. In Micah chapter 6, verse 8, the prophet says, Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. 
It's the question that prompted Jesus' response when he actually quotes the Shema. Master, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and your strength. And then he uses the word and. I always hate it when he puts the word and in. And, you know it, love your neighbor as yourself. So the other way that we love God is by loving our neighbor. Now remember that whole first part of the message about how we love God? Heart, mind, soul. Well, God wants us to love our neighbor the same way. Why? Well, not because our neighbors are lovable, but because God wants us to love like he loves. And here is the revelation. I'm almost done. Here's the revelation that stunned me. God loves my neighbors as much as God loves me. For those of us who are the baptized, the body of Christ, those who have had our hearts made new, we are the ones called to those who are in need of new hearts, those who need to see God's love in action. These last two, loving through obedience and loving our neighbor, well, they go hand in hand. Well, actually, all three go hand in hand. It's not one or two or percentages. Teach our children, love our neighbors, love God. Teach the children. It's an imperative. The Bible says so. Obey the moral and ethical call of a follower of Jesus Christ and love your neighbor for no other reason than that's, what, that's who we are and that's what we do. Just like that's who God is. And that's what God does. He is love. And that is who we are. We are the community of Ahava. The community of love. Feeling and action. 100% of the time. For you coaches, every play, every down, every quarter, every moment. Every day. And you thought following Jesus was going to be easy. And oh, 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 this is a message of stewardship. It's a message of how we steward our lives for God's glory. It's a stewardship of our family. It's a stewardship of our community. Now, there's a part of me as I finish up here that I want to say something like, and so go and do likewise. But the human in me says, I think a better ending is this. Are you ready? Good luck with that. <laughs> Merciful God, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, you are our God. You are one, and you are the only God. And we will love you with all of our hearts, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. And, oh, Lord, we want to love our neighbors as ourselves. We receive this gift 
of ministry, of ahava, of love. Give us the courage, the patience, and the dedication to be your people, to be your ahava, your love to the world. In Jesus' name, amen.